0: Hello, and welcome to How Does Ideology Drive U.S. Foreign Relations, brought to you by the History Department and the College of Arts and Sciences at The Ohio State University, and by the magazine Origins, Current Events and Historical Perspective. My name is Nick Breifogel. I'm an Associate Professor of History and Director of the Goldberg Center for Excellence in Teaching, and I'll be your host and moderator today. Welcome to everyone, and thank you so much for joining us. The United States was a nation forged in the ideological fires of a democratic revolution to overturn monarchy and imperial control. Yet many American leaders and citizens ever since have denied or rejected a foreign policy guided by ideology. Why is that, we should ask. If ideas and ideologies help us to order and explain the world, often serving as rationales for action or inaction, as well as explanations for success or failure. How does the history of U.S. foreign relations appear differently when viewed through the lens of ideology? In short, how has and does ideology drive U.S. foreign relations? Today, we are privileged to welcome Christopher McKnight Nichols, who will explore these and other questions. Christopher McKnight Nichols is a professor of history and Wayne Woodrow Hayes Chair in National Security Studies at The Ohio State University. Nichols is an Andrew Carnegie Fellowship Award winner and Organization of American Historians Distinguished Lecturer. And he's also a frequent public commentator on US politics and foreign policy. Nichols is the author or editor of six books, including most recently, Ideology in US Foreign Relations, New Histories. With that introduction, let me mention the plan. Professor Nichols will begin with a presentation on the ways in which ideology intersects with US foreign relations. And then we'll take your questions, and we'll open things up for discussion. If you're interested in asking a question, please write it in the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen on Zoom, and we'll do our best to answer as many questions as we can. We received several questions in advance, and we'll get to those first. Uh, and then work our way through the questions we get today. We'd like to acknowledge uh, that the land the Ohio State University occupies is the ancestral and contemporary territory of the Shawnee, Potawatomi, Delaware, Miami, Peoria, Seneca, Wyandot, Ojibwe, and Cherokee peoples. Specifically, the university resides on land ceded in the 1795 Treaty of Greenville, and the forced removal of tribes through the Indian Removal Act of 1830. We wanna honor the resiliency of these tribal nations and recognize the historical contexts that have and continue to affect the indigenous peoples of this land. Now, let me pass you over to Professor Christopher Nichols who will take us on an exploration of how does ideology drive US foreign relations? Over to you, Professor Nichols.
1: Thank you so much, Professor Refugel. Nick, it's a pleasure to be here with you and a pleasure to be here with this whole audience. Um, Thank you for coming out. Uh, Thanks to the superb team involved with the Clio Society, the Goldberg Center, Arts and Sciences, um, and the OSU History Department. And special thanks to you all again for being here and especially for devoting your time and mental energy to caring about history and about how history helps us to better understand the present and perhaps to build a better future. Uh, I've been keen to present on this topic for a while, it's really close to my intellectual heart, Um, so I thought I would start actually where uh, Professor Breifogel began as well, uh, connecting place and people um, in the land acknowledgement that you just heard about Ohio State University occupying the ancestral and contemporary territory of the Shawnee, Powhatami, Delaware, Miami, Peoria, Seneca, Winodot, and others. The land acknowledgement I think is useful uh, as a segue for us to consider the intersection of peoples and places and the role of ideas and and the place of ideology as central um, to the imagined and very real possibilities, approaches, and policies that have guided those interactions historically um, and uh, continue to play a pivotal role in the world we live in today. So if you think about this, in the first chapter of my book, Ideology uh, in U.S. Foreign Relations, begins uh, considering questions about indigenous peoples and and the colonies and colonizers and imperialism before the revolution. Indigenous peoples were paradoxically included and excluded in the Supreme Court uh, Chief Justice John Marshall's famous or rather infamous 1831 ruling in the Cherokee Nation versus Georgia that described their legal status as quote unquote domestic dependent nations. They were, in short, both the objects of diplomacy, as through foreign relations, foreign politics, and the subjects of governance through federal structures of the state, of the U.S., as colonized people. Now, it was not always thus, in fact. Uh, indigenous peoples' political uh, claims to membership in the British Empire were far from fixed, and often they placed colonials and colonized in the same footing as subject to the British monarchy. And this is really important to understand, that widening out our view since before the founding of the U.S., ideologies related to empire, subjecthood, who and what counts as a citizen or member of a community, hierarchies of races and civilizations have often been critical to guiding national, colonial, and then early U.S. republic policies, debates, and shaping worldviews. Okay, so using this moment and and our opening um, to branch off to some of these really important topics, Today I'll do three things, hopefully. Uh, First, I'll begin with the recent history. Uh, This is something that most people coming to this kind of topic wanna grapple with. Uh, We'll talk a little bit about Ukraine, we'll talk about uh, China and Asia, uh, we'll talk about Russia. uh, Provide a sense of how ideologies helped to shape US foreign relations in the post 9-11 era, uh, using some great political cartoons to do so, uh, to illustrate those main uh, issues, ideas, and ideologies at stake. Then I'll present some guiding questions about the topic that hopefully will inform our conversation to follow, including on the peculiar presence and absence of ideology in American public life and politics. Second, I'll turn to the issue of definitions, and sometimes this can be boring, so I'll try to do it in brief. Where does ideology come from? What do I mean by it? And what do most historians working in foreign relations circles mean by this? And uh, how uh, did the book itself um, that I'm, I'm branching off my analysis from grapple with the subject? And then third, I'll dive into the history. We don't have a lot of time for it today, but I'll give you some broad brushstrokes and a few key findings that I hope will inform how you think about this subject moving forward and also uh, animate our discussion. Uh, so I'll quickly share my screen now so you can see uh, some good images here. Um, and um, Starting with uh, this is the cover of the book uh, that I was talking about. Uh, and now I'll leap into our thinking about um, about this moment uh, and about uh, and current foreign policy um, and then um, move backwards, as I said. So you know, in the heated 2008 um, democratic primary, Barack Obama's national security advisory team chose the sort of pithy formulation. Um, the, to characterize his perspective on foreign uh, politics and policy. I and mean, that was pragmatism over ideology. And one of the things you saw in this moment uh, was Obama trying to separate himself from the legacy of the ideologies that had informed the Bush administration in the wake of 9-11. Uh, this was often called the, um, just often called the freedom agenda, Um, or a freedom foreign policy, but also, as you are seeing here, caricatured, uh, the Bush Doctrine, right? In the National Security Strategy of 2002, the Bush Doctrine was articulated as one of preemption, that the U.S. could and should use intelligence information Um, in order to justify interventions abroad. This was a new kind of doctrine. It was one that actually had been ruled out during the Cold War uh, as American policymakers struggled with questions of a a first strike, for instance, um, in uh, an atomic, so-called atomic diplomacy. But what you saw in this moment, and in contrast to Hillary Clinton and virtually every serious Republican presidential candidate, was Barack Obama rejecting George Bush's ideological rationale, the rationale for toppling Saddam Hussein, uh, the rationale for moving from Afghanistan to Iraq in the war, um, and the rationale for what uh, many on the left called and derided democracy promotion. Uh, but George Bush uh, did often said that he was not Uh, Pursuing democracy promotion, but you also see uh, here in this political cartoon uh, by Dave Granlund there on uh, down on the screen. um, The kinds of ways in which uh, Barack Obama also struggled with how to describe his ideology Uh, to put it crassly as you've undoubtedly heard. uh, It was often referred to within the White House, the national security strategy as quote don't do stupid shit, Uh, and what was meant by this was that the that the ideology. Ideological approach of the uh, Obama administration was not one that would take ideology um, as central, that in fact it would be ad hoc, uh, that it would be flexible, um, that it wouldn't be rigid. And this is one of the things you see throughout U.S. foreign policy history, an argument that ideologies are fundamentally rigid and therefore problematic uh, and thus to be discarded. Uh, And this gets at the question that Nick began our conversation with. But another way to consider this um, is also through the lens of how ideology has shaped uh, U.S. relations uh, in this same period with Russia, with China, and elsewhere. And one of the things that's fascinating about how the Obama administration dealt with uh, questions of uh, foreign relations was uh, both uh, on the left and the right, we saw criticism of his so-called red line in Syria against the use of chemical weapons. Uh, You also saw, and this is a political cartoon on the upper left, of democracy promotion by George Bush, uh, just as the US uh, was uh, arguing that the rollbacks against democracy in Russia were a problem. And there you see this moment, uh, and and it was uh, another one that was also often derided, that George Bush had said that he looked into Vladimir Putin's eyes and he saw his soul, that he understood the man. Right. And you see there this sort of quick embodiment of the fact that uh, the Bush administration was pursuing democracy abroad. Uh, and at the same time, uh, Russia was rolling up democracy at home, imprisoning uh, journalists and beginning a campaign of um, poisonings, among other things. So um, then you see also derided there uh, and, and analyzed right that, that the Obama administration began a pivot to Asia. And what's fundamentally important in thinking about this moment Um, of of the Obama administration is that as it attempted to elevate pragmatism over ideology, what did they prioritize? They prioritized economic drivers. And the argument was, uh, and you see this uh, in the introduction to the book that I co-wrote with uh, my great collaborator, David Milne, we see there actually the Obama administration arguing that it was far more important to think about the future uh, of economic competition in the world than to worry about things like The nuclear stockpile of Russia or the possible militarism of Russia. Uh, In fact, as as, uh, the Ukraine annexation, uh, the the annexation of Crimea and Ukraine in 2014 suggests, one of the problems of this elevation of pragmatism over ideology was its fundamentally ideological core. That is, that the Obama administration privileged and prioritized economic drivers uh, to some extent more significantly than military drivers or the ideological concerns and orientations of other powers. And that's what we argue in the introduction is really illuminating. Even as the Obama administration eschewed ideology, they rejected ideology, that turn itself was fundamentally ideological. And so by pivoting to Asia, by not having a a, a fuller sense of the Assad regime's um, aims and ideological orientations in Syria, and the same with Russia, It was uh, unable to fully grapple with the security concerns uh, of Russia's Uh, first assaults in Ukraine, you could argue. It's meddling in the election of 2016 and elsewhere. And so in some ways, this moment of mis- misperceptions and miscommunications that goes back through two administrations with very different ideological orientations helps to inform our present moment where the U.S. Was, uh, was caught somewhat flat-footed, not that it was an American-centric problem or concern, when Russia invaded Ukraine earlier in this year, in 2022. So taking a step back, One of the things that I think this helps us to see is some of the fundamental ways in which ideology has shaped U.S. assertions related to uh, Europe um, and, uh, more broadly, the world. Here we see Teddy Roosevelt uh, aiming the canon of the Monroe Doctrine uh, not at people within the hemisphere, but actually uh, at those in Europe making claims to the hemisphere. Uh, and, the, and the caption reads, hands off, this in reality entails no new obligations upon us for the Monroe Doctrine means precisely such a guarantee on our part. Um, this moment, this era, this is 1905 of US assertions of hemispheric dominance came very much through the lens of ideology. One component of that was a, a, an argument about civilization that um, American uh, Anglo-Saxon uh, civilization was superior. Uh, and that it had a, a right and an obligation um, to protect the sort of sacrosanct sphere of the hemisphere. So we see that here. And you could argue you see that expanding globally uh, in the, it, ac- across the 20th century, such that by the early 21st century, the U.S. was making such assertions uh, as, the Obama, uh, as both uh, the Bush administration and the Obama administration did in very different ways about protecting freedoms around the world. Uh, Another way to think about this, and this is a through line throughout the history of the role of ideology in US foreign relations, in different ways in different eras, um, you get the sense of those economic drivers being fundamental, and this was what the Obama administration was talking about, and yet Um, they weren't as fully aware of as they might well have been. Uh, So here's an example from circa 1900. The copyright is 1900. It might have been published in 1901. And after all, the Philippines are only the stepping stone to Asia. This comes on the heels of the War of 1898 um, and a piece that followed in Paris, uh, where the U.S. acquired uh, the um, Philippines, uh, Puerto Rico um, protectorate status um, in uh, in Cuba and elsewhere. Um, and what you're seeing in this uh, image is the ways in which uh, one sort of land acquisition, one um, strategic acquisition uh, carried with it, uh, embodied here, everything from steel rails and bridges to education and religion, all of the component parts of a broader American ideology, of American civilization moving abroad, um, or uh, in, in the language of the imperialists of that era, uh, the a battle over whether or not American civilization begins at home, or should be exported abroad. So here we go. Um, Let's think about this problem for a moment. The US is really, as as, uh, Professor Breifogel noted, um, and as we put this together, a nation forged in the ideological fires of revolutionary democratic ideology. Ideology has always been there, right? Um, But one of the fascinating components of that, when you look at uh, US ideology in domestic and foreign policy is that there's been a remarkable amount of continuity. Um, you know, this is arguably a product of the fact that unlike many other nations, the U.S.'s borders um, have been mostly safe. Uh, there have been, uh, there has been a relatively stable political culture. We could talk about the Civil War and others, but fundamentally from the time of the founding moving forward, it's compared to nations that have, say, had major revolutions, uh, invasions, occupations, or society-shaking crises of various kinds, the U.S. has been, uh, been able to escape most of those, or many of those. And so for me, what's really fascinating, and this is something I wanna plant a seed with you all right away, right here at the outset, um, is that there's been a real absence of self-consciousness of foreign policy ideology. So when you look through the historical record, whether you're looking at grassroots, regular Americans, their letters to each other, their memoirs, their diaries, or you're looking at the uh, most elite policymakers and presidents, you find uh, a remarkable absence of self-consciousness about uh, foreign policy ideologies. That's meant that ideology has, as I say there at the bottom, often been cast as a problem. Um, In other words, it's been seen as narrow or or inflexible or uh, the product of bias or prejudice. Uh, And it can be all those things, but it need not necessarily be that. And so one of the critiques that comes out of the origins, actually, of ideology in the French Revolution is that by um, the early 19th century, some critics of ideology were suggesting that it re- was really much more of a problem than a solution. That ideologies that structure thought, uh, that help people make sense of the world around them, and then um, help to provide an orientation towards future options and policies. That those actually um, were uh, were to be uh, rejected. Um, so uh, the takeaway there is that ideological formulation has often been less reflective in the U.S. and it's been more prone to outright rejection. So, um, so I wanna then talk a little bit about ideology more generally, what it is. Um, this is the second part of the talk, what it is, what it isn't, um, and where we might go from there. What are key words, key concepts, uh, ways of thinking about the subject um, and, uh, and, and move ourselves forward. So if you're looking at the longer history here, and this would be this would be a long talk for a, for a different day in some ways, but I wanna give you a brief outline of it so that we have a sense as we embark here The term ideology has a long and contested history. Um, It was really introduced by the ideologues uh, of the French Revolution. The first uh, use of the term is about 1797. Um, And what they did was they constructed it as a science of thought. It was aimed at constructing a system of ideas that reflected material reality. So ideology for the French ideologues was about a science of thought, um, a system of ideas that reflected material reality. Now, about 50 years later, Karl Marx, um, articulated one of the most influential uh, orientations of ideology, uh, and instead articulated that the relationship between culture and political economy, providing an essential, it was the relationship um, between culture and political economy, providing an essential mechanism by which societies managed and reproduced themselves. Um, so uh, if you if you move this kind of concept forward from Marx, a society's quote, legal, political, religious, aesthetic, or phil- uh, philosophic forms. Ensured that members of the different classes viewed their positions in society and the system itself as natural. Now, in some ways, this is about a kind of false consciousness that ideology mapped over um, social differences in order to keep capitalists and the ruling class um, doing their thing. Um, But it also was a way of saying that uh, material drivers were essential, but over the top came a kind of ideology. Now, in the 20th century, the French Marxist philosopher Louis Althusser shifted this perspective slightly, and this is something that a lot of the historians involved in in my work in this book um, uh, have uh, been a little bit more oriented to. Um, This was to make uh, to make he made the case that ideology is better understood as world making through reason and language, uh, more of an imagined set of relationships that do in fact correspond in many ways to real conditions of existence, as he put it human societies secrete ideology uh, at the very element and atmosphere indispensable to their historical respiration and life. And you see this in in a lot of the ways in which theorists talk about ideology, uh, that it comes out of the sort of corpus of humanity that is fundamentally human um, uh, in in this sort of way. And for Althusser, in this sense, ideology defined the real for the subjects of any particular society. Um, That is uh, their lived reality, uh, and lived existence um, was understood through ideology. He emphasized this role in uh, the role of the state in this process, that the state and social institutions are the quote apparatus that helps to reproduce ideology. So that you see that there, that the apparatus of the state and state in- institutions helps to reproduce and reinforce ideology. Okay, so what's that all about? If you're thinking about US foreign relations, the state department, presidents are part of this process. So is the news media. Uh, So are foreign policy lobbies, so are political parties, so are church groups, so are uh, non-governmental organizations like the Red Cross. There are all kinds of ideologies um, at stake in their orientations to the world, how they understand it, what policies they advocate for, and then that shapes how individuals think about ideology. All right, so how do I define it? How do we define it in the book? Uh, Moving forward here, so Clearly, here's just some core ways of thinking this through. Ideology set the terms of engagement for nation states and for all actors thinking about foreign relations. They're not static. This is one of the sort of misconceptions about ideology, that you can pin it to the wall. But as intellectual historians often say, it's like nailing jelly to the wall, right? When you get it nailed in, it comes sliding down. Right. So you need to be very cognizant of change over time and context. Ideologies order and explain the world, as I say here, project illusions of controllable outcomes. That's a really important element of this. We all know in our lived experiences that uh, just because you believe something or hope to achieve something, it doesn't necessarily mean that that will happen. The same is true for nation states, no matter how powerful they are. The same is true for non governmental organizations, no matter how powerful they are, and other kinds of actors in the foreign policy realm. Um, Now, a key component of, of all Uh, definitions of ideology is that they make a complex world more manageable. In a world of infinite options and policies and principles and assumptions, you need something to help filter that, to make sense of that. And that's really what ideologies do. In so doing, as I say here, right, they define it and explain success and failure. They justify and set boundaries. And perhaps most important when you're thinking about ideology and foreign relations, especially in peace and in war, they compel sacrifice, aggression, and inaction. So if you're thinking about right now the war in Ukraine and Russian troops, right? One of the things that that not having a robust Russian ideology related to the war in Ukraine has meant is that morale is terrible for Russian troops. When you think about morale for US soldiers in other conflicts, for instance, as a comparison, right, in World War II, the US had been attacked by Japan at Pearl Harbor, it made for a robust ideology that seemed to transcend, um, to seem to transcend differences in the ranks of the troops, right? It was a war. Uh, of, uh, as FDR would put it, for the four freedoms, which we'll talk a little bit about later, a war to make the world safe in Wilsonian terms for democracy, a war against evil, right? And that helped bring people together to sacrifice. And sometimes the function of ideology hides the fact that it is an ideology. We can talk more about that. But the point being that in some ways the Obama administration's pragmatism over ideology, of course, was itself an ideology and the function of those kinds of ideas and concepts and policies uh, can sometimes make it less obvious that they're at play. And that's one of the arguments that you see in in the Marxist thinkers about ideology that really seems to hold true, that you can have very subtle, um, unreflexive, unacknowledged kinds of ideological commitments that are profoundly shaping for individuals and groups and nation-states of outcomes. Uh, So here, one final uh, definition. As Michael Hunt, a historian who's worked a lot on on foreign relations and foreign policy and ideas, has argued, ideology is best understood as, quote, an interrelated set of convictions or assumptions that reduces the complexities of a particular slice of reality to easily comprehensible terms and suggests appropriate ways of dealing with that reality. So what does that mean? If you're thinking about foreign relations, ideology is really about a core set of assumptions, core set of principles that helps distill the complex world around us into a more coherent worldview that then can help make arguments for how to move forward, what kinds of policies, what kinds of hopes, aspirations, dreams, and compromises are possible. So that's, in a nutshell, the ideological terms of the book. So how has it influenced US foreign relations history? Um, How does this history look different? I organized an international conference. I brought together 20-plus historians. There I am on C-SPAN talking about the subject. the to, to, to look at this. And one of the things that we noted, one of the reasons why the book has been getting some good attention this year, is that most foreign policy historians, most foreign relations scholars, if they've looked at all at ideology, have tended to look at elite policymakers. And some of what follows in my quick uh, history here will be from that perspective, but not exclusively. They haven't tended to look at, at indigenous peoples and groups, like I just noted at the outset. They haven't tended to look at marginalized groups in the U.S. and abroad. They haven't tended to look at grassroots actors or generational um, differences, which I'll talk a little bit about later. They haven't tended to look at cultural production. Uh, So there's a great chapter in the book on George Lucas and Star Wars and how his uh, fear of modernization theory uh, and actual critique of it and the US war in Vietnam deeply inflected uh, his construction of the Star Wars universe in fact. Uh, And that that was intended in some ways as a subtle way um, to generate uh, similar kinds of, of thinking out of those watching it. Uh, that may be news to some people watching this right now. Read Daniel Imowar's chapter in the book to learn more. So one of the approaches to understanding this and one takeaway that was surprising to us is that it was, it's crucial to think about key terms and concepts, uh, ideas, ideologies, You know, concepts like capitalism, concepts like white supremacy, uh, thinking about nativism, thinking about refugees, thinking about democracy. One term and concept came up again and again in my research and the research of those involved in the book, civilization. You can see that in the political rhetoric of presidents and policymakers, and you can see it in the words, language and thought of everyday actors from the foundational era of the US uh, at the turn into the 19th century, all the way up to the present sort of civilizational thinking has informed US foreign relations in different ways at different moments. But as I noted, right, thinking about from George Bush to the Monroe Doctrine and back and forth, um, civilization has been a justification for intervention or non-intervention, anti-imperialism or uh, or imperialism. It's been a way of thinking about best practices at home, civilizing at home against indigenous peoples and groups, and on and on. We could talk about that. A a major development in in historical circles, really, over the last generation has been a kind of linguistic turn. Uh, this is a big difference from um, about roughly three or four decades ago, when historians were looking um, for other kinds of orientations and thinking about ideology. So a lot of the people in the book, a lot of the scholars that I'm in conversation with about ideology, look at ideas and look at words, look at language, and are very attentive to the etymology and direction of those words and ideas. All right, so now I'll give you this very quick overview of a few ways to understand um, what has happened uh, in ideology. Uh, and um, and this history, and then we'll get into our conversation. So, you know, as I've argued, foreign policies emerge from and produce ideologies out of necessity. The Monroe Doctrine in 1823, which I already brought up, is a good example. Issued by James Monroe, conceived in part by John Quincy Adams, and ostensibly designed to forestall European interventionism right in the hemisphere uh, and safeguard U.S. regional interests, the doctrine arose from and bequeathed powerful variants to things like imperialism. Uh, things like unilateralism, kind of hegemonic view of the U.S.'s role in the hemisphere as a kind of caretaker, uh, ability to meddle at its own will, um, and developed during a really critical period uh, of anti-colonial revolutions across Central and South America. One element at work here that's important to note is the U.S. has had a long-standing preoccupation with the problems of revolution, particularly at its doorstep, but also within the country. And so it's an anti-imperial, imperialist country, a revolutionary, anti-revolutionary country. It's a fascinating set of ideological constructs that are often in conflict. Um, but if you move forward, the dynamic of foreign policies emerging from as well as generating ideologies is further powerfully confirmed uh, you know, more than 100 years later uh, with the Bretton Woods system of 1944. It was designed to help the world recover from the Second World War, as all of you smart folks in the audience undoubtedly know to avoid the mistakes made following the First World War, when the US wasn't doing post-war planning in the midst of the war, uh, did not join the League of Nations. um, And the structures of the world order, uh, what one scholar calls a new deal for the world, Uh, The creation of institutions such as the United Nations and the International Monetary Fund are very clearly ideological projections of power. They're premised on a U.S. leadership role for a post-war world. And that's really one of the key ways of thinking about this. So here, over a century apart, are two key ideological orientations of the U.S., one in the hemisphere, one worldwide, that help us get a sense of many of the overlapping kind of ideologies at work. All right, so I'll quickly give you a few more tidbits uh, before concluding. Um, John Quincy Adams in the 1840s actually interestingly argued for British imperialism. He made a case in the, in the context of the Opium Wars um, that, uh, that, that in fact um, their, their, uh, the, the British uh, role in the world uh, and it was one um, that was crucial and that uh, China's leaders were committing a, quote, enormous outrage on the rights of human nature, uh, chief among them, the right to free trade. So even though he's known as this great uh, abolitionist, uh, also articulator, as I said, in the Monroe Doctrine, a fascinating move in the 1840s was John Quincy Adams and a kind of ideology of empire that actually excused British imperialism to some extent and articulated this kind of civilizational thinking where the British and Americans were allied against other nations and peoples who are perceived through racial hierarchy as less important, less significant, or more inferior. Here's another thing to plant a seed for you all. There's a great chapter in the book by Professor Emily Conroy Crutz. I should say the previous one is by Professor Nick Gaia. In her argument, uh, she talks about late 19th century missions. And one of the things that's fascinating about this is she looks at the next generation, uh, a section of a mission um, of the Missionary Herald, uh, and of mission uh, magazines and newspapers was this section called For the Young People. And one of the things that it did uh, was um, that, that it uh, introduced the, she introduced the voices of youth not often heard in histories of the U.S. and the world as a way to understand um, how missionaries uh, took, took ways to ensure that the next generation understood the world around them, the differences between other cultures in the U.S., and, and sometimes in relativistic terms, sometimes in very much um, racialized and racist terms. Um, you know, as she argues, appealing to its readers as children, the letters, uh, the, uh, the letters understood that children grow into adults. The ideas that were planted as seeds now would grow to shape the ideology of the adults the children would become. We very often don't think about this. This is the same with that Star Wars example. And one of the things I want to highlight for you is that the children of missionaries in the late 19th century very often became the diplomats of the 20th century. They became the people who are the articulators of what Henry Luce called the American century because of their language skills and cultural competency. So another element of the book and another thing that I want to point out just very briefly is that if you look at the grassroots level, you find some remarkably... Um, uh, deep and broad uh, arguments from regular Americans about foreign policy, that in fact ideology can operate very effectively at the level of regular citizens. And in fact, um, you know, uh, if you look at foreign policy polling, it's often said that Americans are not um, great at at, at uh, understanding foreign relations, understanding the world around them. Um, but when you look closely at the letters, for instance, of GIs returning from World War II, you find that, in fact, they have very deep and rich concepts about the world around them and very deeply felt assumptions and principles that guided their worldviews. As she puts it, uh, Professor um, Michaela Honecky-Moore, uh, You find in this bottom-up approach a diversity of foreign policy perspectives that defies conventional binaries of isolationism and internationalism, elites and masses, hawks and doves, Republicans and Democrats, or even conservatives and liberals. You find, in short, lots of GIs coming back from World War II, among other things, very hesitant to be the world's policemen uh, in the Cold War. Um, So let me do a couple more, and then we'll conclude. Uh, one chapter of the book by Professor Andrew Preston that's fantastic um, is about national insecurity, and in particular about the role of fear and emotions in shaping ideology. As he argues, there's been an inordinate prevalence of fear that sits at the heart of American, the American worldview and provides a basis for thinking about US foreign policy. If you think about how Americans have operationalized fear and how politicians have used fear to justify interventions, military conquests, and other kinds of foreign policies, Uh, Just quickly, you get a sense, especially since World War II, of the operational capacity of emotions in generating new ideological constructs. What do I mean by that? Thinking about mutually assured destruction, mad. Thinking about how and why you see there between 2016 and 2020, more fear of China and Russia, less fear of North Korea. Why would Americans who uh, who have a lot less to fear from North Korea be more fearful of North Korea than South Koreans? That's an interesting opening question that Andrew poses in his chapter, and it's a, it's a really fascinating way, fascinating way of thinking about how such a powerful nation as the U.S. has often operated out of fear, not just since 1945, but especially when it had this immense military and commercial power, economic power in the world. All right, one other way to think about this is freedom. Uh, This is a great chapter in the book. Historian Jeremy Surrey talks about it, and I wanted to plant this as a seed for us in our conversation and for you to talk about with others as well. Surrey argues that the notions of freedom as an ideology is really useful. As I note there, um, it can be understood uh, as a base alcohol for Americans that changes over time, mixing well with certain additives in some moments, but not with others. Uh, What he argues is that uh, freedom from, freedom to, and freedom over are essential ways of determining and understanding different periods. The Monroe Doctrine uh, is a classic example of freedom from, in that case, from European meddling in the Western Hemisphere, as I've noted. And Surrey dates that the period from uh, freedom to as being dominant in the late 19th century when the US economy was developing at breakneck speed. Uh, Woodrow Wilson was the influential advocate, advocate of freedom to uh, the rest of the world, uh, according to Surrey. In the Second World War and the beginning of the Cold War, arguably the period of freedom over over other nations, um, just as Jean-Jacques Rousseau might have phrased it, forcing them to be free, (laughs) uh, to become an essential task of U.S. foreign policy. Uh, As as, as he writes, and as as I've also written, the National Security Act of 1947 is one of the crucial moments in this phase when Americans self-consciously built a permanent military industrial complex to guard freedom on a global scale. Um, And okay, finally, uh, I'll give you one more. This is from my own chapter. Um, If you're thinking about unilateralism, I argue that it may be the longest standing construct in U.S. foreign relations ideology. A kind of visceral orientation, yes, uh, but also intellectual. Um, This urge to go it alone, this urge um, for self-sufficiency, to uh, not have multilateral constructs um, keeping the U.S., from its perceived vital interests. And the the point here is that uh, unilateralism goes all the way back, back to John Quincy Adams saying, quote, happiness consists in independence disconnected from all European interests and European politics. Even Hamilton, who was instrumental in securing the first Anglo-American treaty argued that a fatal heresy is that of a close alliance. You hear this in Washington and Jefferson, right? Fear of entangling alliances. But what this has informed is something much broader and deeper. Skepticism about NATO, which we've heard so much about in recent years, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, the first collective security organization the U.S. joined since the revolution, uh, joining it in 1949. Uh, Skepticism about the U.N., skepticism about binding trade trade alliances and deals like the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Scepticism about the U.S. being part of international law, uh, being subject to the international law of other countries. So what I want to argue is that this um, unilateralism, which we've sometimes heard in recent years is, uh, for example, was something that was unique to the Trump administration, is in fact not at all. And that unilateralism goes as far back as the U.S. nation state, and that helps explain the kind of enduring ideas about why going it alone, why minding your own business in the world pulls so well with so many Americans. That these kinds of ideas uh, about self-sufficiency, about neutrality, about not being bound um, to binding alliances and structures with other countries are really deep-rooted in American thought, and especially in how Americans think about their role in the world. Um, in particular, about border-making and boundary-making as a, another critical component of that. So I'm really uh, interested in talking with you all about how the US has rethought its role in the world over time and how ideology has been central to that. Uh, And I will leave it at that for now. Thank you so much.
0: Chris, thank you so very much for giving us so much incredible kind of information and things to think about. in such a very quick period of time. So much appreciated. And this book looks incredibly rich uh, and incredibly interesting. Let's give you some questions to kind of think about. Uh, folks who are with us today in the audience, please uh, send in any questions you have by typing them into the Q and A uh, function, just at the bottom of your screen, and I will happily uh, pass them on and and we can talk about them. We did have a few questions that came in uh, in advance with registration, and I thought I'd just start with a couple of those just to kind of get us going. Um, One of the people in our audience wants to know, so how does the United States justify working with states that are openly opposed to American ideals uh, in order to combat kind of our enemies? And has this changed over time? And if so, how?
1: That's a good question. So the one way of thinking about that is that um, there's been a fundamental mismatch between rhetoric and reality in U.S. foreign relations from the outset. Um, that a kind of cautious realism, you might call it, a willingness uh, to deal with those who perhaps have repugnant ideas or repugnant actions based on core precepts of American democracy has been there um, in part at the beginning out of weakness, not strength, that the U.S. had to deal with other nations or felt that it had to, American diplomats and policymakers. Um, the, at the level of criticism of high policy, however, you have seen also from very early on, uh, media, regular members of, of society, um, critiquing that exact problem, the, the, the core of this question, that the US has in fact allied with or worked with other countries and groups who were not following American sorts of principles. You know in many eras, then the point of thinking about ideology is to think about what it can uh, justify. Um, In many eras, the U.S., certainly in the Cold War, for instance, propped up so-called Frankenstein dictatorships, Um, people in groups who nominally claimed to be democratic and, in fact, were totalitarian dictators, often oppressing their people, or uh, the U.S., of course, has notably been a participant in several major coups that have changed world history, you know, uh, anti-democratic coups, I should say, such as in Guatemala or in Iran, Um, So uh, that has not changed fundamentally, but I would argue that structures of American power have changed over time, such that the US did not have that capacity, say through the CIA and intelligence that it does in the 20th century and 21st century in the 19th uh, and and early 20th century. And so operating out of a more of a weakness model, you got more of these sorts of um, alliances of convenience and need Uh, you get that, but more in terms of security structures and meddling in the later 20th and 21st century. Um, So there's some change and there's some continuity. Uh, There, of course, are ideologies in the US foreign policy matrix that would not permit that, right? And so that's been another part of the mix. And so I would add one other element, which is interesting, in 1898, you had the Anti-Imperialist League, and in 1940 and 41, you had the America First Committee. Both were the two bi- they were the two biggest uh, foreign policy lobbies in U.S. political history, and both argued that the actions the U.S. was taking were uh, fundamentally anti-democratic and not in the nation's best security interests. They're very from different, very different places. One was against... Uh, colonialism, and the other was against the U.S. intervening in the war and what, and what was World War II. Um, but in both of those instances, what those lobby groups were pointing out was a mismatch between rhetoric and reality, or as they saw it.
0: Chris, you just mentioned kind of media and and the role of media, and and I, w- I wonder if you could speak a little bit about how you think the the changing kind of realities of media. You know, obviously from the nineteenth century through until the internet age. How has that transformed um, the role of kind of ideology in, in foreign policy? I mean, going from yellow journalism to uh, to Twitter, uh, what to, what is, what's the role there?
1: Yeah, that's that's a that's a good question. It's practically a whole other book and conversation, right? Um, so the there's several ways you could tackle this. You know, one is to think about actual foreign policy formation uh, tends to happen uh, well outside the realm of popular discourse. Uh, so the National Security Council these days, you know, groups that are you know, the national security strategy, lots of area experts with all kinds of language skills and nuanced uh, capacity. Um, but the in the public sphere, the shaping of what is projected happens through the media, uh, you know throughout time, even though that, that uh, they're more, there's a lot more of a governmental apparatus now. Uh, and so if you look to the uh, early 19th century, you find these robust critiques of U.S. relations with uh, with France and with with England in terms of the Napoleonic Wars, and, the, and uh, they're highly partisan and very vituperative, ad hominem attacks. But Jefferson was exposed as someone who'd had you know um, relations with with an enslaved person, uh, which we would now call rape. All right, uh, you know high profile things like that as part of a critique of foreign policy and domestic politics. Um, as you move forward through through the 19th century and the 20th century, you know, I think the the media's role in um, not so much ideological formation, but in articulating what those core ideas are, is really important. Um, so you get you know uh, presidents attempting to shape that conversation. So one of the things I was trying to highlight as I was planting those seeds was the The role of political rhetoric and the way historians really now are very attentive to language, a kind of um, deep attentiveness to changes over time, etymology, and that sort of thing. One of the things you see in the 20th century is American politicians trying to explain to the wider public why, for instance, you know, containment of the Soviet Union in the late 1940s um, meant that the U.S. should be spending lots of blood and treasure in places like Turkey or regarding Greece and Italy. Um, and you know, so that the that's the Truman administration, I'm thinking about the Truman doctrine, that in in other words, in ideological terms, why the US should be a guarantor of freedom for free peoples around the world and supporting them in 1947 and moving forward. It takes the media to get that out to the wider public and to help generate buy-in. And so you see much more, especially the mid-20th century, of a neat connection between the two. As you spin that forward a diversity of media in the landscape the velocity of change in technology has fundamentally altered that that's really a, an abnormal place in american political history so where we are now is that you have a vast array of different articulators of US foreign policy and critiques thereof, including citizen journalists, you know, right, on Twitter and elsewhere, such that it's much harder for a president or a foreign policy team to articulate something that could generate a lot of buy-in. I mean, so those early examples that I was giving, right, you could see both the left and the right critiquing Bush and Obama for very similar things in different ways, um, you know, uh, it's, a, it's emblematic of this point, that it seems awfully hard to have a central centralized kind of media Um, positioning to help reinforce a foreign policy, if you're a policymaker, and if you're a regular citizen, you probably like the fact that you have more channels in some ways, if you take advantage of them, to get a better sense of what are the implications of U.S. foreign relations. For instance, drone strategies, or what's happening in Yemen, or where where are U.S. uh, weapons going around the world? Why does the U.S. have 800 bases around the world? These would have been questions that would have been much less asked by mainstream media in, say, 1950.
0: Oh, that's great um one of the people in the audience is asking uh uh well this question so with the two-party system that we have now and with it now being so antagonistic and seemingly unwilling to work together how do we craft a long-term foreign policy that can best serve an overall ideology and political goals and not have it be subject to change uh or debate over change every every four years
1: that's a, a a great question. Um, I think that you know, in my take as a historian, is that uh, one of the remarkable things about U.S. foreign relations over time, and I hinted about this, is that there has been a real consistency across administrations. The sort of peaceful transfer of power across administrations in the U.S. has often meant a kind of continuity, particularly when it comes to pledges to other countries, uh, pledges to for security. Not not always, right? We could point to some terrible examples where that wasn't the case, but generally speaking. Um, there's there's been a a neat through line in US foreign relations whereby uh, administrations mostly adhere to the kind of core precepts and assumptions that came before. Um, That was sort of blown out of the water by the Trump presidency in 2017. And if you're a nation state around the world observing the US, if you buy my quick gloss of that, that there's been more continuity in general across administrations, then you have to look at the US now in 2022 and say it could change dramatically after 2024. And I think this this question gets at the heart of that, that you uh, can't assume that there will be a a significant continuity. Perhaps you couldn't in the past, perhaps that was naive to think that that was the case. Uh, Nevertheless, it now seems that recent history has suggested that that um, is no longer accurate. So how do you do that? Well, one thing is to think very long-term. This is where some of my work on grand strategy comes in. If you're thinking about the next five or 10 years, that may be uh, insufficient. Um, but if the US is committing to say a 20 to 50 to hundred year set of strategies, and of course they can't be too specific, um, they're more aspirational. They need to be big things like containment, containing the Soviet Union for as long as it takes so that there aren't revolutions around the world and so that there isn't a world war, right? So basic precepts. Uh, and then you fill in those policies over time an articulation of that a kind of new grand strategy say for climate change um, would be the kind of thing that you could imagine uh, outlasting some administrations. Now, it might be uh, thrown into chaos somewhat by a different presidency, but as a long-term strategy, you could imagine then every four years sort of resetting to some extent and then trying to build in some continuity, say, through international organizations or other, or other kinds of groups. You know, the fact of the matter is um, most of these ideologies, as I said, aren't static. And so they operate not just at the level of policymakers and formal policy, but they're changing with different contexts, and they come from the bottom up. And so one of the important points of the book is that these GIs coming back from World War II, for instance, that that grassroots actors in all different scenarios, they're really informing policy, too. They have robust ideological commitments um, that can push change over time. And so, you know, our ideologies matter, those of us in this conversation, right? Our kinds of commitments, my deep commitment to democracy around the world means I will advocate for the people of Ukraine, even if the president and politicians don't. Right, so in some ways, foreign policy ideologies are ours ourselves, not just located in the nation state or in, in the bureaucracy or our representatives.
0: No, that makes a lot of sense. You mentioned climate change, and uh, one of the questions we have is is revolves around the ways in which ideology plays out, perhaps differently uh, when you are looking at sort of bilateral relations. Mm-hmm. You know, U.S. China, U.S. Russia, U.S. Mexico, whatever you want to pick. Uh, as opposed to the way ideology functions when dealing with international types of questions, global questions, things like climate change or a global refugee problem, or mm-hmm. issues of that kind of nature, where there are multiple actors, sometimes everyone on uh, on the whole planet is is involved in these kinds of discussions. you know thinking about cop twenty seven we've just mm-hmm. finished up. but do we do you see uh you know la- I'm sorry, Do you see ideology working uh, differently in those different types of kind of diplomatic relationships?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And you see that over time. So I think where I ended the chapter, I wrote one of the chapters I wrote in the book, unilateralism comes from my longstanding um, studies of isolationism, unilateralism, globalization. And, you know, so obviously it's incompatible to think about a a strong unilateralist orientation and kind of multilateral commitments to binding agreements and uh, say through, Climate change accords through uh, different kinds of economic partnerships, um, and, and on and on and on. So um, it depends on the particular ideologies, right? Th- those commitments, uh, and depending on your moment, you know, we could go farther back um, in trying to stop the U.S. road into the First World War. For instance, the Secretary of State William Jennings Bryan thought that he, that the U.S. should pursue lots of bilateral cooling off treaties for arbitration, for instance. So it wasn't that he didn't want to pursue kind of global peace, he thought the best path for that was through lots of bilateral accords to say, okay, we will go to international arbitration before we resort to war. We will not trade with belligerents. We will let international arbiters help us decide whether or not we're sending war materials or just raw materials. um, That would be helpful to a people, but perhaps not to their full capacity for war making. He, of course, disagreed with Woodrow Wilson, and in 1915 was the first Secretary of State to resign because of those disagreements. Wilson was much more multilateral in the the, the sense that he wanted to join the war be on the side of the British and the French. Now, of course, the US entered that war as a quote, associate power, it had no formal alliance there, It did not fight under the flags of other nations. So even there, you see a kind of commitment to the US being part of the war and its outcomes, make the world safe for democracy, while still not being fully multilateral in the kind of sense we, uh, in a contemporary 21st century sense, you might you might think, right? Not having a full formal alliance. Um, so, you know, I think that that's a, it's a really important point And that there can be these kind of complex configurations of ideologies of just thinking about the World War I moment helps illuminate that, especially in War and Peace. Um, But another piece of this, and just one of the reasons why I did all the definitional work is, you know, ideologies are really about your core principles and assumptions. Some of the assumptions you won't know. We don't know our full assumptions. We're, you know, we're enmeshed in a world where we we have certain beliefs that are are fundamentally unarticulated and, and uninterrogated. Uh, but some of those might be about then say why we need to deal with climate change for the next generation or several generations down the line, even if we have a kind of mental construct that we prefer unilateralism, for instance, that we prefer you know the U.S. acting on its own interests uh, uh, um, with national autonomy and sovereignty in most in most occasions. So the challenge there is then how do you operationalize that ideological construct for the core commitments that are maybe a little less interrogated. This gets to psychology, this gets to philosophy, right? It isn't really so much a, 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 an easy historical piece of analysis, except to say that one of the things we find in the historical record is so often these ideologies are contradictory, um, that, that there's something problematic embedded in them, and it depends on the particular moment to see how the scales balance, right? And they may balance for multilateral commitments to a multi-generational project against climate change, and they might actually uh, shift to bilateral trade uh, protectionism in some other moment, for instance.
0: I'm gonna sneak in one more question. I'm gonna beg everybody's patience just to to, to keep on, just for, because there's one more that came in. Um, uh, Did the Obama era kind of pragmatic ideology that you talked about uh, blind us to Russia's nationalistic ideology and subsequent invasion of Ukraine? to what extent does a nation's particular ideology make it unable to understand other nations with different ideologies?
1: That's a great question. That's exactly what I was teeing up there in that that opening. So thank you. Um, Yes. So I I think that, you know, the Obama administration's elevation of a kind of pragmatism was first, uh, over ideology, was first, frankly, fundamentally ideological. Like pragmatism is about, uh, as William James would have put it, um, the conduct that an idea dictates—that it's always provisional—and um, that it's a philosophical tool for figuring out, you know, um, the worth of ideas, the so-called cash value of ideas, as he put it. Uh, so, the what one of the things that's missed there is the fact that the sort of um, aggrandizement, uh, and and I think that we have a problem here of, of um, scale, right? So, nations uh, don't necessarily have ideologies, right? That's an abstract concept. Vladimir Putin has an ideology that we can diagnose to some extent uh, through his public statements. Eventually, as his historians probably will get in his records, hopefully, and figure that out. Uh, we'll see. Um, maybe some future historians will. Uh, and so we can diagnose his ideology, and one of the things we see there is this sort of um, mythologized historical view of a kind of imperial ruse that never actually existed, that doesn't recognize the fact that Ukraine and not Russia was sort of the origins of Russia. Um, and that Kiev predates Moscow, and we could have a long story, story about this, but he has this imagined history uh, that matches on to his kind of nationalist, nationalistic ambitions. Um, And that's the kind of thing that someone like uh, Barack Obama would be very capable of diagnosing. And the challenge, the problem was that their core assumptions of the national security strategies in that period were pushing back against strong ideological orientations for the US's role in the world, say, democracy promotion, freedom, a freedom agenda, right, these things that came out of the Bush administration. So what they prioritized was economics. What they saw in Russia, and this is the question is exactly right, was a country that that was dependent on fossil fuels almost singularly um, and had no future as an economic competitor to the US or China that they could perceive. So they pivot to Asia and and they don't really think about say cyber warfare, all the meddling elections that's going on, the assault on Georgia that precedes the assault on Crimea. The fact that fundamentally, Vladimir Putin was obsessed with this kind of nationalistic, mythologized vision of achieving a past that had never been there for a future that seemed, you know, impossible. And so you're you're exactly right, um, except that you know, the Bush administration had very different miscalculations about Russia, right? They were pushing back, thinking that Putin was being anti-democratic within his country, uh, but they weren't so sure about um, the possibilities for collaborating um, and connecting in the future, that that Bush saw much more possible working with Vladimir Putin. Obama, you know, tried to reset that relationship. It didn't really work out. And his miscalculations were about prioritizing economics over other forms of ideological um, aggrandizement, territorial, Uh, sort of mythologized, um, et cetera. And I think one other element of this that's fascinating, uh, Daniel Imawar, who wrote the chapter in in the book about Star Wars, um, recently wrote wrote a piece on geopolitics. And one of the things we're seeing in the world now is this argument that it's a re-territorialization of the world. One of the things the Obama administration was operating under was this uh, presupposition coming from people like Thomas Friedman that the world had been flattened, um, that it was all about globalization and connection. Uh, and this, and and he did not see the border making, the boundary making, and the nationalistic kind of muscular nationalism and authoritarianism that was rising. Uh, and that's arguably because of the certain ideological blinders um, and, and presuppositions that were there versus other ones. And I don't mean this as a critique because I'm critiquing both administrations, just trying to diagnose the foreign policy ideas that are there. And I think you're right fundamentally one of the ways of understanding the role of ideology in U.S. foreign relations is that it shapes the future, right? It, it, as I said, right, it is this mechanism through which you can make a complex world more finite, but in so doing, that does narrow the parameters of what's possible and it potentially um, leads to significant miscalculations. And you can see that in other eras too, which is one of the things that the book, um, uh, that the book eliminates.
0: Chris, thank you so very much for I mean it was just such a pleasure learning from you today, and and you've given us so much to think about uh, as uh, as we walk away. Um, I, I want to thank everyone for for joining us today for your excellent questions. Uh, I'm really grateful to, to Christopher McKnight Nichols uh, for sharing his expertise and his passion for history. Please join me in giving him a virtual round of applause. Thank you, Chris. Very, 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 very much. Um, and uh, I'd also like to thank the, the College of Arts and Sciences, especially Alex Stacklain, uh the Department of History, the Goldberg Center, uh, and Origins Current Events and Historical Perspective uh, for their support of this event. Um, again, thank you all for coming today. Chris, thank you so much. Um, and uh, please stay safe and healthy, and uh, we'll see you next time. Goodbye.
1: Thank you all.